Welcome to the Women in Government podcast. Whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started. About 54 million Americans have osteoporosis and low bone mass. That means they're at risk of a fracture or bone break. One in two women and up to one in four men age 50 and older will break a bone because of the disease leaving many with permanent pain and a stooped or hunched posture. Hi, I'm Lucy Getman, Executive Director of Women in Government. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And on this episode, we are going back to the basics, the bone basics. There's a bone health crisis affecting the country, tallying up repeat fractures, hospitalizations, and long-term care needs, resulting in Medicare costs of $52 billion a year. And what's more, many of these cases could have been prevented with scans and appropriate care. Joining us to answer some important questions about osteoporosis are Maine State Senator and Board Chair of Women in Government, Stacey Guerin. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a voice in this Bone Basics discussion. It's crucial to our state. We also have Arizona Representative Jennifer Longden. Hi, thank you for inviting me to join you today. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Finally, I'd like to welcome Dr. Andrea Singer, Associate Professor-in-Chief of the Division of Women's Primary Care and Director of Bone Densitometry in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. I'm very happy to be here today to talk to about a subject about which I am very passionate, and I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And finally, I'd like to thank everyone who's listening and remind you to like or share our conversation. You can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. Today, we'll be exploring the concept of when you or someone you love receives a diagnosis of osteoporosis and the most important things to consider in order to live a happy and healthy life. To get started, let's just learn the basics. Dr. Singer, what is osteoporosis and a few of the serious complications associated with the disease? Osteoporosis literally means porous bone, and it occurs when either the body loses too much bone, the body makes too little bone, or both. As a result of this, bones can become weak or fragile and therefore more likely to break. And it's that break or fracture, people use them perhaps differently, but they really are interchangeable. But it's that fracture that is really the consequence that we are trying to avoid. Fractures or bone breaks can be life-altering events. I know we'll speak more about this, but they can lead to changes in mobility, loss of independence, the need for assistance in doing routine activities of daily living. That's the consequence that we're trying to avoid. Who's at risk of developing osteoporosis, and what are some of the risk factors, Dr. Singer? Well, unfortunately, there's no one who is safe, meaning that there's no either gender or race that can't develop osteoporosis, but it most commonly occurs in women and more often in Caucasian followed by Asian women. This is also a disease of aging. So while aging is certainly better than the alternative, the older we get, the greater the risk for osteoporosis and for having a fracture. Probably the single most important risk factor is having had a prior fracture. So once somebody has had that first break or fracture, they're at a much higher risk for having additional fractures. 
We then need to think about things like family history, in particular the history of a hip fracture in mom or dad. And then there are modifiable factors. So many of the things I already mentioned are things we can't change. That's just who we are. But when it comes to modifiable risk factors, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, poor nutrition or diet overall, in particular poor calcium intake or vitamin D insufficiency, being sedentary and really not getting enough exercise or activity. And then on top of those things, there are certain diseases or other medical conditions and certain medications that we may take for other conditions that can increase the risk as well. A new report from the National Osteoporosis Foundation finds the disease is responsible for more than 2 million bone fractures as of 2015. That's a pretty big number and could scare older adults who are afraid of falling, breaking a bone, and then be forced to change their living environment. Doctor, you're an expert on osteoporosis and have a list of the top eight bone basics. Can you share with us your thoughts on when someone is first diagnosed with the bone disease? I think that initial diagnosis can be quite scary. First of all, nobody really wants to think about it. We always think about that as our grandmother's disease. I don't have to worry about that now. That's an older person's disease. In fact, as George Burns once said, we can't help getting older, but we don't have to get old. And fractures and broken bones make us old. So the first thing I would say is one shouldn't panic. As you mentioned, in terms of the number of fractures in this country and the number of people with osteoporosis, this is common. So this is something that can be dealt with. And importantly, there are things we can do to change outcomes. The second thing I would mention is to remember that osteoporosis is serious. And again, that speaks to the consequences of fracture, which we will talk more about. But they can be life-altering events. So there may be things in one's lifestyle that need to be changed, something that is increasing the risk for fracture, preventing falls. We'll talk about that more later the lifestyle interventions we can do, we may need to make some changes. The next set of things or bone basics really have to do with the lifestyle pieces that we can alter. So nutrition is important, in particular calcium and vitamin D, but overall a well-balanced diet. Again, we want to treat the whole person, and so that means focusing on many different aspects. Exercise, in particular weight-bearing, muscle-strengthening exercise, but once somebody has established osteoporosis or they have had a fracture, we need to be careful about higher impact things and anything that would increase the risk for a fall because a fall is often the precipitating event for a fracture. And then beyond the lifestyle and behavioral changes, we have medications which can work very effectively. And so one needs to keep that in mind. There are ongoing protocols for continued evaluation or how we measure whether the treatments that we've chosen are working. There needs to be importance placed on the relationship with one's healthcare provider. So again, having these discussions, figuring out your risk, and then figuring out the correct path toward reducing that risk is really a shared decision-making process between the patient and the healthcare provider or clinician. And then know that there are other ways to get support out there. The National Osteoporosis Foundation has a wealth of information on their website. They sponsor a support group called Inspire, which is online. Many cities have local support groups, some of which are affiliated with the National Osteoporosis Foundation. So one doesn't need to feel that they're alone. 
there are lots of ways to get information and lots of ways to be proactive and really pay attention to this disease. Thank you, Doctor. You mentioned a number of factors and options, one of which is medication. If there is a diagnosis of osteoporosis, what are some of the options available and are they safe? When we think about medications, there are really two major buckets or umbrellas, if you will, in terms of types of medications. There's one group that we call the anabolic medications or bone-building medications. They work primarily to build new bone and increase bone strength. The other bucket or umbrella of medications are what we call anti-resorptives. They work primarily to slow bone breakdown and help to stabilize things. Importantly, both categories have been shown to reduce the risk of fractures at the spine, the hip, and also other non-spine, non-hip sites. Those are the areas that we worry most about. So there are lots of options that come in different dosing regimens. Some are taken daily, some weekly, some monthly, some twice a year, and some even once a year. They come in different routes of administration, so there are pills, there are medicines that can be injected under the skin, and there are medicines that are given intravenously. The bottom line is there are many choices out there so that hopefully we can find a medication that works best or is most appropriate for each patient. And again, that's where that shared decision-making process comes in. There is a lot of attention out there to side effects. And we always talk about risks and benefits of medication. I kind of like to reframe that and talk about benefits and risks because if the medicine didn't have any benefits, we wouldn't be discussing it at all. What I think people need to realize is there's nothing in life that's risk-free. The osteoporosis medicines certainly have the potential for some side effects or other adverse events, but these are low in comparison to the benefit that people can gain when used in the right situation and in somebody who is at high risk for fracture. And most importantly, when we're balancing the benefits and risks of the medicine, that has to be balanced against the risk of doing nothing and having someone have a fracture. With 54 million Americans at risk, it's important for states to be involved in the solution. In fact, several states have already implemented successful programs targeting osteoporosis education and bone health promotion. Currently, there are about 35 states with osteoporosis-related legislation in place. Maine and Arizona have both taken steps to address the human and financial toll of bone health issues. Senator Guerin and Representative Longden, as we found out, age and gender are both risk factors for osteoporosis. Can you both share a constituent or personal example of bone health needs from your home states of Maine and Arizona? Senator Guerin, why don't we start with you? Thank you. I do have an excellent example from my own family. My cousin, who is in her 60s, had to have a hip replacement about a year ago. And three weeks ago, she was at the gas station and tripped and broke her other leg up high near the hip. And so this is very serious thing for her because she is still working on recovering completely from her initial hip replacement and now the other leg has been badly affected and she is out of work doing rehab to get back on her feet again. But certainly a very difficult life situation for a single person. And many of our older women in Maine are single 
being by yourself makes it difficult to do the self-care that is necessary when you're recovering from a significant bone issue. Thank you, Senator. Representative London, are you aware of either related or similar or completely different examples from your community? Well, I can speak not only for my community, but for myself. And although I am in terms of how most physicians would gauge an individual for risk of osteoporosis, in those terms I'm relatively young, but because of my spinal cord injury and I'm no longer weight-bearing, I've struggled with significant issues with my bone health, including a fall that left me with every one of the long bones in my legs, both femurs, both tibia, both fibula, all of them fractured and additional breaks to bones in my feet and my kneecaps. And because of that, I ended up spending a significant amount of time out of my home and in skilled nursing because I was unable to care for myself. That's just one example. I hear about people who fall and fracture a hip or break bones in their legs, in their homes. And as the senator pointed out, because they live alone, they may lay there without aid for hours or days until they're found. So bone health is critical to our ability to live an autonomous life. Thank you both for sharing such personal examples of the devastating impact that an injury, a fall, a fracture, or a break can have on an otherwise autonomous lifestyle. So looking at the big picture, what does good bone health mean for both Mainers and Arizonans? Mainers are fiercely independent people, and good bone health in the state of Maine is critical in maintaining our independence and the ability to age in place, which is what our seniors prefer to do. So dealing with bone health before it becomes a break or a replacement is critical if people want to remain in their own homes and stay independent. And that is what Mainers are very well known for. Here in Arizona, we have these beautiful mountain ranges and amazing hiking trails and hiking and biking seem to be part of our lifestyle overall. In addition, Arizona is a destination for individuals who, upon retirement, decide they'd like to enjoy our climate. So we do have a high concentration of seniors here, and folks who come here envision enjoying that active lifestyle, not sitting in a nursing home or recovering from fracture after fracture. Senator Guerin, you alluded to this a little while ago, but looking at the demographics of your state of Maine and its population, it's considered the quote-unquote oldest state in the nation. First of all, what does that mean? And also, can you tell us if the men and women of Maine are more at risk for osteoporosis? You are absolutely right. We are considered the oldest state in the nation demographically. We're working at bringing more young people in. As Representative Longden said, we value hiking and biking and being outdoors. That's our brand here in Maine. And so as we age, we are continuing to do those activities. But we know from the National Osteoporosis Foundation research that in the state of Maine, 40 to 50 percent of women and men age 50 and older are at high risk of developing osteoporosis due to low bone density. Representative Longden, how about Arizona? 
While generally I enjoy being competitive, in this particular case, I find it somewhat alarming that in Arizona, men and women have a higher risk of osteoporosis than in Maine. 50 to 60% of women and men over the age of 50 are at high risk for developing osteoporosis due to low bone density. And we get that information from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Coming up in just a bit, we're going to hear what steps your states are taking to address bone health issues and to chat a little bit about the Falls Report from the Special Committee on Aging. But first, it's important to note that osteoporosis is a silent disease, and many people don't even know they have it until they fracture or break a bone. For women, the chances of breaking a bone are greater than that of heart attack, stroke, and breast cancer combined. Dr. Singer, two risk factors for developing osteoporosis are age and menopause. What should every postmenopausal woman understand about the bone disease? Menopause has often been mentioned as sort of the defining event in osteoporosis because when women reach menopause and lose the protective effects of estrogen, they can lose significant bone density. In fact, some studies have shown that in the five to seven years following menopause, women can lose up to 20% of their bone density. That sounds scary, that sounds really daunting, but the flip side to that is osteoporosis is not an inevitable consequence of aging, nor is fracture. So we need to think about bone health as we are reaching menopause, and certainly in the postmenopausal period, and think about being our own advocates and being proactive. And that may mean taking stock of what our risk factors are, having that kind of discussion with a healthcare provider to say, am I at risk? Do we need to do something to further evaluate this? And making sure that all of the things that you can change, diet, exercise, smoking, other habits that may worsen bone health, that those are things that you're taking care of. What are the best strategies that postmenopausal women can take to be healthy, active agers? Again, I think this is where being one's own advocate and being proactive really comes into play. So know or ask about your risk factors. Hopefully, the primary care provider or healthcare provider with whom you work is asking you about those questions. But if they don't ask you, don't wait for them to do so. You can say, you know, I understand that postmenopausal women are at particular risk for osteoporosis or bone loss. What should I be thinking about? What do we need to know? And ask if you're a candidate for a bone density test or a DEXA scan, because that's one of the best non-invasive means of evaluating bone health and bone density. We know that the lower the bone density, the greater the risk for fracture. And so that test can give us a lot of information about who might be at risk and when we need to intervene, right, on the primary prevention side, meaning doing something before somebody has that first fracture to try to prevent the first fracture never too late to do something. That speaks more towards secondary prevention. If somebody has already had a fracture, they should still be evaluated to prevent the next fracture. But both of those aspects are really important in terms of trying to reduce the burden of this disease. The other thing I'd like to mention is a little bit more about bone density. Because we talked about that being the gold standard for how we diagnose osteoporosis. And there's been a real issue in the U.S. with a significant decline in the reimbursement for DEXA scans by Medicare, by the federal government, since 2006. What we've seen is with this decline in office-based DEXA scanning and reimbursement, 
there have been fewer places that are offering the procedure because it's not sustainable to do that at such low rates. That's led to fewer Medicare-aged women being able to get a DEXA scan. If we don't do the test that yields the diagnosis, we can't make a diagnosis. So there's been a decline in osteoporosis diagnosis since 2009. And what we think this has translated into is actually a plateauing of the hip fracture rates. So hip fracture rates have been steadily declining from about 2002 to 2012. And then we saw a leveling off because we're not evaluating people as much, not making the diagnosis, not treating. And now we're seeing additional hip fractures that we did not expect to see, which leads to substantial costs to Medicare, as well as an increase in the number of deaths in this population that could have been avoided. Even though osteoporosis is a silent disease, we don't have to be silent about the facts, including the lack of availability of reimbursement for DEXA scanning. And I will mention that I talked sort of about the national figures or the trend nationally. There is state-specific data that's available. That can be found on the National Osteoporosis Foundation website, and it gives numbers about the change in accessibility to DEXA scanning in each state, what that has led to in terms of estimated consequences, in terms of fewer numbers of women who are getting the scans, the numbers of additional hip fractures that are being seen that potentially could have been prevented, and what that translates into in cost. So if listeners are interested, they can look for that information on the National Osteoporosis Foundation website. Thank you, Doctor. Clearly, this is an issue that impacts all of us. So what can we do as mothers, grandmothers, and aunts to educate and prepare the younger generation to prevent osteoporosis? That's a perfect time when we have younger people around to talk about prevention. We accrue most of our bone density by age 20. And the rest, that extra 10%, so about 90% by age 20, the extra 10% in our 30s. So when your kids tell you you're over the hill after 30, while I'd like to think in a lot of ways that's not true, when it comes to bone health, that's sort of the best we tend to get. And then our goal is really to maintain bone and continue to do all of the things that we can to strengthen our bone. So it's important that as mothers, grandmothers, aunts, other family members or friends, we talk to children and teens about what they can do to reach peak bone mass. The greater the peak bone mass that you reach, the better off you are later on when you start to lose bone. And I sort of liken it to a bank account, right? The more money you have in the bank, the more you have to pull from later in retirement to spend. The same with peak bone density. So being healthy growing up. We know that healthy nutrition is a really important determinant of peak bone density. In particular, calcium as a nutrient is very important. Exercise, being active, moving away from the computer, walking outside, taking our feet to get us places, those things are very important. Not smoking or drinking or doing other detrimental things that could affect bone health. There are certainly genetic components that can affect bone health, but there are many things that I've just mentioned that if we get our youth to focus on, perhaps they'll have more in the bank when they get older so that when they start to lose bone, there's less danger of hitting a level that's dangerous. I'd like to bring the conversation back to the state level. Senator Guerin and Representative Longden, I'm very interested in hearing what each of your states is doing to promote bone health. 
Senator, what types of programs and services exist in the state of Maine to prevent, address, and treat the growing problem of bone health issues? I'm happy to say that Maine has a state-funded program that helps pay for prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs for low-income Mainers with certain conditions. It's called the Maine Low-Cost Drug Program for the Elderly and Disabled, and it covers those 62 years of age and those who have a disability and meet an income and asset test. Osteoporosis treatment is among over a dozen other conditions that qualify. Senator, what are the financial eligibility limits for the program and who's eligible? There are some eligibility limits, so this is kind of the breakdown of that. You must be 175% of the federal poverty limit for your family size. It does have an asset test. Liquid assets must be below $50,000 for a single person or $75,000 for couples. Non-liquid assets do not count. And we have quite a few that are in that category, like your home, vehicle, income-producing property, savings of 8000 to 12000 prospectively for singles and couples, and tools of the trade and furniture. You also must be aged 62 or disabled, and we use the Social Security definition of disabled. Dell will pay 80% of the cost of the drug after the recipient first pays $2 plus 20% of the cost. Senator, if someone qualifies for the low-income drug program and also Medicaid Part D, are they compatible? Can they work together? The good news is yes, they can. For Maine Care members who have full Maine Care, Dell can help reduce your Medicare Part D drug copayment to $0 for generic and to $1.80 for brand name drugs. According to the National Osteoporosis Foundation, the women and men of Arizona are also at high risk of developing osteoporosis due to lone bone density. Representative Longden, can you tell us about what types of programs and services exist in your state of Arizona to address bone health? In 2006, Arizona passed an appropriations measure to fund grants for services related to osteoporosis with a special focus on our rural and underserved areas. And this effort included an effort to foster collaboration among interested organizations to work on creating a statewide network to screen for osteoporosis. And again, I've been a beneficiary of that program. Arizona State University has been able to use some of that money to fund programs to look at the impact of osteoporosis in the lives of individuals as they age. Representative Logden, what else could states and or the federal government do to increase awareness about, prevent, and treat the impact of bone health difficulties at every age? So I think that there are a couple of things that really are important, and Dr. Singer touched on one that's critical, funding for DEXA scans, because it is far easier to deal with this issue when we're preserving bone rather than when one tries to rebuild it, as I have personally experienced. So some of the things that we can be doing, and in Arizona we are doing them, is to encourage activity. And one of the things that happens is as a result of both aging and living with disability, people tend to become more isolated. 
And if they're staying inside their own home, then they're not getting out and doing that bone-building, weight-bearing exercise that's so important. We have a number of programs here in Arizona, community-based programs, that are encouraging folks to come out and take a walk together or get in the pool and participate in activities together. Additionally, working on ensuring that we have aging in place strategies so that we're building curb cuts, we're putting ramps in homes instead of stairs and helping individuals do things as simple as putting in grab bars in the bathtub or shower area to avoid those falls and those fractures. These are areas that we can all improve on by contributing to things like CBDG money, community block development grants, so that that can be used to help people prepare their homes so that they can age in place. Representative, you mentioned falls, and we know that falls are the leading cause of unintentional injury, emergency department utilization, and even death among older adults. We're going to take a look at some sobering statistics. 30%, nearly a third, of older adults die within 12 months of a hip fracture, and one in four ends up in a nursing home. Every 11 seconds, an older adult is treated in the emergency room for a fall, and every 19 minutes, an older adult dies because of the fall. What's even more frightening is that these numbers may be underrepresented because half of older adults who fall don't report it to their doctor. Senator Guerin, as a state legislator from Maine, can you tell us a little bit about the recent recommendations from the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, chaired by Maine U.S. Senator Susan Collins, along with Ranking Member Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania? I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm really proud of the work that my Senator Susan Collins has done for bone health, and it is such a critical issue in Maine. So having it brought to the national stage, I think, has been really helpful. The U.S. Congress recognizes the importance of bone health as well as the states now. So the Senate Special Committee on Aging just released a new report to Congress on bone health, especially as it is related to preventing falls that completely change a person's life and even threaten it. The 2019 report to Congress was issued by my friend, U.S. Senator Susan Collins from Maine, U.S. Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, and supported by the committee, including Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Recommendations include raising awareness to prevent falls, improving screening and referrals for care, including bone density scans, targeting modifiable behavior factors, such as home safety issues, which in my family, my mom still lives by herself at age 95, and her bedroom is upstairs, so we've put in a railing and, you know, really conscious about take a hold of that railing every day. So they're talking about those types of things in the report. And they also want to have a reduction in the risk from drug interaction that can lead to falls. And in my mother's case, that is she has something to keep her circulation healthy, medication, but that does cause falls. And so we have really focused in our family on we are going to prevent these falls from happening. Hold on to the railing. Place your feet carefully when you get out of the car. Just things that an active senior need to become aware of. One in four Americans aged 65 and older falls each year, but falling is not an inevitable part of aging. Falls are preventable and recovery is possible. Dr. Singer, the risk of falling increases with age. What are some of the reasons for these accidents? There are a number of different reasons that people 
and fall as they age. Anything that's going to affect mobility, as we just heard in terms of some personal experience from the other participants on the line. So arthritis, things that make it difficult to move joints, loss of muscle strength as we get older, which can become common, and we often think about in an overall category called frailty, that can make falling more likely. Deterioration of vision, changes in hearing as well, so our other senses that often help us balance and keep us in the right place can make it more difficult to stay upright. There are medications, as were mentioned, anything that is sedating, right, a sleeping pill that somebody might use, certain pain medications that somebody might be taking for other reasons that can have sedating effects as well, certain blood pressure medicines that are important to manage blood pressure but could drop or lower someone's blood pressure and make them feel lightheaded. So those are all things, as well as vitamin D deficiency, that could contribute. And I think we really can't dismiss this issue of hazards that are at home, area rugs that somebody could trip over, a wire that may not seem like it's really out of place, but it's loose and somebody could fall over. Grandkids come to visit and toys are left on the floor. Things that we don't normally think about in everyday life, but hazards can really be important and they are something that can be easily modified. Dr. Singer, you've talked about some of the ways that we can prevent these types of falls, but let's talk a little bit about recovery. What does the road to recovery look like for someone who's suffered a fall and perhaps a fracture or bone break. That can be a very difficult road to recovery sometimes depending on how much injury was sustained with a fall, if any. If somebody has broken a bone as a result of a fall, it depends in large part on what bone was broken. But even something that seems like it should be simple, like a wrist fracture, can really impair our ability to do our activities of daily living. Buttoning a shirt, getting dressed, combing one's hair or brushing one's teeth, And that doesn't speak to things like a hip fracture, which can obviously have much more of an impact on mobility in terms of moving around and doing all kinds of things. Making sure that once somebody has had a fall, preferably before they've had any falls, but certainly when we know somebody is at risk for falls, a formal gait and balance assessment or falls risk assessment, and then treatment afterwards, maybe in the form of physical therapy, It may be somebody who can help and talk about the use of assistive devices, and it may be somebody who can really help the family look at the home situation to change obstacles that are around. All of those really can help on the road to recovery, and in particular in preventing future falls, because all of this becomes additive, and it can often be the beginning of a spiral downward that we would really like to try to prevent. After years of targeted trials, researchers have developed programs to help prevent falls among those in their golden years. Senator Guerin, I understand Maine has a program that helps reduce the fear of falling and increase activity levels among older adults. Can you tell us a little bit about it? As I said earlier, Mainers are fiercely independent and we like to look after ourselves. So this program, called A Matter of Balance, is an eight-week structured group intervention that emphasizes practical strategies to reduce fear of falling and increase activity levels. Participants learn to view falls and fear of falling as controllable, set realistic goals to increase activity, change their environment to reduce fall risks, and exercise to increase strength and balance. 
In addition to all the things being done on a local level, I also serve as chair of the board of directors of the Women in Government Foundation, or WIG as it's sometimes called. We know healthy bones impact all of us, and WIG compiled a bone health toolkit last year to help states and individuals ensure good bone health. The toolkit describes what some states are doing to help prevent and treat osteoporosis and other bone health issues. It also educates everyone about the importance of bone health. The toolkit is on our website at womeningovernment.org. Thank you, Senator. It's been my pleasure to work with you and see all of the great things being done all across the country to support good bone health. So as we wrap up, I'd like to provide some time for closing statements to address the most important things our listeners need to remember about osteoporosis. Dr. Singer, we can start with you. While we talk about a lot of the daunting consequences of osteoporosis, namely fractures, there is a lot that we as individuals and as individuals working with our healthcare providers can do. So my message would be to women in particular, but to all of us, to be proactive. Ask about the need for screening, know your bone density and your risk factors, do the things that you can do from a lifestyle perspective, work with people to prevent falls because that's extremely important, and if you're 50 years of age or older and you've had a fracture or a broken bone, ask your healthcare provider for a bone density test because you need to be evaluated. You are among the group that is at the highest risk for future fracture. Representative Longden, any final thoughts? Thank you, Lucy. I really enjoyed our time here together. So we've heard some really grim statistics, but I think what's really important to emphasize is that this isn't inevitable, that we still have opportunities to preserve our bone health, that the testing is very important, nutrition in terms of calcium and vitamin D, good weight-bearing activity to stay as active as we can tolerate for as long as we can. And then as soon as possible in our adult life to begin to look at our strategy for aging in place. What is our housing going to look like, not only at 40 or 50, but at 70 or 80? And what steps are we taking to prepare ourselves for that? And last, as I've been listening, I've come to realize how grateful I am to have the resources available from women in government that I can rely on things like the toolkit and this podcast to educate myself so that I can better serve the constituents of Arizona. Thank you, Representative Longden. And finally, Senator Guerin. It has been a real pleasure talking with you folks today, and I think we've brought out a lot of points where individuals can be self-advocates for their bone health, and that is an extremely important aspect of our toolkit is giving you the resources that you need to think about how you're going to self-advocate. Talking to your doctor is always a good idea. Ask them about your bone health as you are aging. Look around your home before you fall over something and think about what is going to make my home safer. Look at your lifestyle. What are you eating? What are you drinking? And be an advocate for yourself. You have the ability to give your bones a better chance, and I think each of us needs to do that. And I would also say, remember to go to the womeningovernment.org website and check out that toolkit that we have on bone health. It really is a great resource for people all over the country. Thank you, Senator, and thanks to all of our resource speakers. This has been an incredibly informative opportunity to talk about osteoporosis. And when we started this podcast, we referenced the fact that Osteoporosis and low bone mass affects about 54 million Americans, 
It's called a silent disease, usually discovered after a fracture or breaking a bone. As we heard, there are some life-threatening statistics, like 30% of older adults die within 12 months of a hip fracture, and one in four ends up in a nursing home. This can amount to fear and silence among older adults who don't tell their doctor about a fall, and that's dangerous. Falls are preventable, and recovery is possible. That's why it's important to know the basics of bone health and to support programs that aid in the development and maintenance of strong bones, which are resistant to fracture. So again, I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. I'd also like to say thank you to all of the listeners for taking the time to hear this important discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.